Well, here's what I would like to focus on with you this morning. This question, what does our worship of God on Sunday have to do with our work for God on Monday? Anything? Nothing? I mean, have you ever even thought about that question? I wonder, what jump starts your day and gets you out of bed in the morning other than that delicious cup of coffee, right? What is it that makes going to work, packing lunches, and hitting the books worth the grind? Or let me put it a slightly different and even more direct way this particular Sunday. How does our relationship with Jesus Christ today in how we worship and who we worship inform and shape and transform and even guide the way that you and I live the other six days of the week, Monday to Saturday? Is there any connection or link at all? Well, according to Scripture, I'm here to tell you there absolutely should be. You see, the Bible is full of good words about good works, both God's work and our work. Give you a little pop quiz. What's the very first thing we are ever told about God? It's that He works. In the beginning, God created. Genesis 1, verse 1. Work is something that we've turned into a four-letter word as a dirty thing, but it's not a dirty thing at all. And I think we're going to spend some time in the month of September unpacking the relevance of our worship, not just on Sunday, but every other day that ends in why. Today, I want to show you from Psalm 127 how this reminds us as God's pilgrim people of a rather basic yet all-important, even all-encompassing lesson, namely that either the Lord will be welcomed and conjoined with our efforts and endeavors, and I do mean all of our efforts and endeavors, from the most mundane and the most minuscule of efforts to the most important and monumental of our efforts, that God is to be Lord over all of them, not just an hour and a half on a Sunday, but every hour that follows Monday to Saturday. From our workflow to our home life and everything in between, either God is present in those things or they are utterly empty and futile. Work, and again, friend, I mean every form and type of work. Work done without Christ rings hollow. It is pointless. However, all work, and again, I don't mean just what a pastor does, but every kind of work from preaching to parenting to picking up trash and making a pizza to putting down tiles at home, every sort of work that's done for Christ and in dependence upon His grace and strength is truly holy and eternally meaningful. Today, I want you to know you matter to the Lord. What you do matters to the Lord, whether you are in formal ministry or not. And I think Psalm 127 has a, a thing or two to say about that. Now, related to this, in view, of, in view of this short psalm, I want you to understand today as well that trying to raise a family in this day in particular without a clear recognition and regard for the Lord is simply foolish and unavoidably futile. Amen? Amen. However, child-rearing done the right way 
and done for the glory and honor of God and done with reliance upon the help and grace of God is both blessed, useful, and abundantly fruitful. Work and home. In short, what we see today is that life without the Lord is absolutely empty. However, a life lived dependently and devotedly for the Lord is wonderfully and blessedly full. Now, I have to be completely honest with you. I have been tremendously helped this week in my study by Pastor Eugene Peterson and his particular book that I shared in a Sunday school class a few years ago, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's a short book, a classic book, even on selections of psalms. I highly recommend that book to you. Well, in it, he writes, Psalm 127 shows us both the right way and the wrong way to work. The right way and the wrong way to work. He says it posts a warning, verses 1 and 2, and then it provides an example, verses 3 to 5, which guide Christians in work that is done for the glory of Almighty God. And I think, friend, he is exactly right. What we do now between the space of our gathered worship and our gathered worship in the other days, it matters, it echoes, it's meaningful to the Lord. You see, over and over again, the Bible tells us that apart from God, our creator and sustainer, as we've sung this morning, any endeavor, any enterprise, any effort, be it sacred or secular, from work to play, from parenting to worship, that is not done for the Lord and with needful aid upon the Lord is doomed to failure. It's doomed to be futile. You can have short-term success, but you will not have eternal success if you leave God out. That's the point. Just remember what Jesus says in the Gospels, John 15, verse 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? You can do nothing. That's right. On the other hand, everything that we do that is from faith, that is, that is based upon a sure and certain uh, reliance and dependence upon Almighty God is full. It is blessed. Hebrews 11 verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. Romans 14 verse 23, for whatever does not proceed from faith is what? It is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Pastor Ligon Duncan said of this particular psalm that apart from God, our lives are pointless, restless, and inevitably fruitless. And that is so true. But with the Lord, friend, your life and mine, from our work life to our home life, can actually overflow with the abundance of God's blessing. That's the idea this morning. It's a short psalm. I think it's worthy of our reading once more. Let's listen to God's word. Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless, the idea here is, except that, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Verse 2, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he, the Lord, gives to his beloved sleep. Verse 3, 
Behold, look at this. It's an illustration. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Dear friends, this is God's holy and inspired, completely inerrant, and altogether life-giving and trustworthy word. Praise be to his name this morning. Now, I want you to understand, firstly, that Psalm 127 can be categorized among the Psalms as simply a wisdom psalm. Psalm 127 is a wisdom psalm, much akin to Psalm 1, Psalm 14, Psalm 37, Psalm 73, Psalm 112, Psalm 119, and Psalms 127 and 128. There are about eight or so wisdom psalms in the Psalter. And this is not surprising when we note there in the superscription, perhaps just next to the, one, the big 127 in your Bibles, that this is one of two psalms from King Solomon, that sage um, and wise king, the son of David. The other psalm, of course, being Psalm 72, if you'd like to make note of that. Now, we famously read of Solomon's prolific wisdom and writing in 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 29 and 30, where the scripture states clearly, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. Kids, this is something you ought to ask for, right? So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. We read in verse 32 of 1 Kings chapter 4 that Solomon also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. That's a prolific writer. Well, the book of Psalms contains just two of them, Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. We also notice, of course, that Solomon, King's, uh, King David's son and royal successor, was himself exceedingly experienced at... Interestingly enough, building and being a father, building and, and raising children. These are the two key themes that really are very much related to Solomon and his experiences that we find here in Psalm 127. Is it building the temple that Solomon, of course, was able to do initially? Is it building a dynasty, uh, the, the line of David, the line of Solomon? I think there's actually multiple applications to that idea of the word house. Now, we should also note here, before we press into the text a bit further, that this psalm is the eighth, interestingly enough, and therefore the middle psalm in a collection of 15 psalms that, as Brother Jim said a moment ago, are songs of ascents. Songs of ascents. That's not a, an aroma that you smell, but rather that, an idea of going up, to climb up. You see, the songs of ascent, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, or the pilgrim psalms are a compilation or a collection of popular and inspired songs that various Jewish families and pilgrim travelers would sing as they traveled up, up, always up to the place of Jerusalem, those ancient paths on the long roads to worship God in the city of Jerusalem at each of the three annual Jewish festivals. The big three, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. 
Again, this is one of, but I think interestingly, it's the middle of the songs of ascent. I think that's intentional in its arrangement. When we take together as a whole Psalms 120 to Psalm 134, and we dig into them, we examine them, we notice that they reveal an important pattern. It's actually a threefold pattern. It's a thematic cycle, which is repeated, interestingly enough, five times. The Torah, five, first five books of the Bible. There are five cycles of three here in Psalms 120 to 134. And they can be categorized as following. Longing, depending, and celebrating. Don't we as disciples of Jesus spend our time in those three ways? Longing to be home in heaven with the Lord. Depending upon the Lord when we are away from him. And celebrating when we gather in his presence. Longing, depending, and celebrating. Another way we might, another way we might say it is trouble, trust, and triumph. Trouble, for example. I am away from the presence of God. That's actually what Psalm 120 is all about. Trust, what do I need to do to get to God's place of presence? And finally, triumph, what do I experience when I finally arrive back home in the presence of Almighty God? I want to encourage you to, to spend some time in studying the songs of ascent and, and go around them and see that pattern for yourselves. Because the songs of ascent give us today, you and I here this morning, as modern believers in Messiah Jesus Christ, a sense of language for our longing to be at home in heaven with Jesus. It gives us language, categories for our, uh, our life. These are the tunes that we treasure daily in the daily grind along our pathway to glory. Well, friend, here's the big question this morning. Why would any pilgrim be they ancient or modern, want to sing these particular words. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor do it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, those who stand guard do so in vain. I mean, what, I mean, what relevance does that have for worship, you might say? Why sing about such ordinary, everyday things such as work, and sleep, and raising kids? Oh, that's a good question. What's so spiritual about these ordinary activities? Well, the reason, to be perfectly clear, is quite simply this. Most of our lives are spent on the way to God. Think about that. Most of our lives are spent in movement towards the Lord. Even here and now, we must continually learn to live in dependence upon God. And it's kind of easy to do that on Sunday mornings, is it not? I mean, Jesus and his glory is up close and personal right here when we're gathered. But how's Monday morning for you? What about uh, Wednesday, hump day, whenever you're, you're tired and, and the, the week is now in the middle, but you're not quite to the weekend yet? Where's the glory of God and his goodness there? Consider how many hours each of you spend at work and at school and at home as opposed to doing something obviously and explicitly spiritual like being at church or reading your Bible or sharing your Christian faith with somebody else. Those activities are to be just as dedicated to God 
as your attendance at church. The fact is we spend a disproportionate amount of time serving God away from His sanctuary than we do serving and praising God in it. And Psalm 127 is one of those songs that you can put in your pocket and whistle while you work on Tuesday. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor do so in vain. Another writer put it so well. He said, we do not spend most of our life at church. Some of us feel like we do, but we don't do it. Being a Christian pilgrim involves much more than just showing up for worship on the Lord's day. At least it should, friends. The Christian pilgrimage encompasses all of life, including our work life and our home life. Close quote. In other words, this is the transformational truth that I want to press home to you over the next month or so. God cares just as much about what you do on Monday as he does about what you do on Sunday. God cares about your ordinary, everyday existence. The gospel was given to transform it, not just transform what we sing and do together here. All of life is to be lived in obedience and as an offering of worship to the Lord. Is this not what the Apostle Paul says after unpacking the glory of the gospel throughout the book of Romans? In chapter 12 of Romans, Paul begins to say this, I appeal to you, therefore, Brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Have you ever thought about how Romans 12, 1 and 2 applies to your workplace? How you are to be conformed Not to the world, but to the word while you work. God gave that verse, not just for church, but for the church sent, for when we scatter. On this particular point, a great Old Testament scholar by the name of Derek Kidner, I highly recommend his writings to you, agrees, stating, quote, one of the most telling features of this short psalm, Psalm 127, is that it singles out just three of our most universal preoccupations. Notice, he says that of building, that of seeking security, and that of raising a family. And they make us ask the question, what do they all amount to? And to whom do we owe them? Close quote. Who is not familiar with wanting security? Who is not familiar with trying to piece the finances together to provide a a decent home? Who is not familiar with the touch and the laughter of a family? The answer, of course, is that ultimately, as with all things in life, we owe it to the grace and the goodness and benevolence of Almighty God. Or, if we don't, these pursuits will inevitably, and friend, I will tell you, they will eventually be reduced to sheer nothingness and evaporate into oblivion. That's what the word vanity is all about. Consider just for a moment the wisdom of the book of James. James chapter 4, verse 13. I love this verse. It says, come now. It's really a rebuke to us. Pride of spirit. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. It's really describing work. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? 
You are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. James 4, 13 and 14. You ever think about that verse when you're working away? When you're raising kids? The precept behind what I'm talking about is very clear. Anything minus God equals nothing. That's the whole point of Psalm 127 verses 1 and 2. Anything that we give ourselves to, that we leave God out, amounts to nothing. Now beyond this, I want you to see as well as we press in a little bit more to the granular level of the passage. That there are effectively two halves to Psalm 127. Perhaps you see that as you look at the text yourself this morning. Two halves, two main divisions to Psalm 127. At first blush, you might be able to notice two parts, but you might think, I don't really see, Pastor Dan, the connection between the two. The division, of course, happens between verse 2 and verse 3. I think the word behold helps to set out the, the distinction there. They seem oddly unrelated, but as we work through, I think we see the connection. The first point or the first part of Psalm 127 is what we might describe as a wise warning. A wise warning to earthbound travelers in pursuit of their eternal and heavenly home. Remember who's singing this song initially. It's Jewish pilgrims on their way to the presence of God in Jerusalem. That's just like us as modern day Christians. We are on our way. This world is not our home. And we are to keep our eye on the Lord even as we work day in and day out. A wise warning. Solomon cautions us as we work for God, and we should work hard. We should work well. We should be the best employees in our respective businesses. But as we work hard for God, we dare not leave him out. We dare not leave him out. Further, as we seek to provide safety and security over a city... As we, this is a, a basic felt need of humanity, that we, we long for security as we long and pray and work and watch the city walls. We could do it absolutely perfectly in our own strength, and it would still be futile if we leave God out. Even as we stay up late at night burning the midnight oil, trying to cram for that last test, kids, or trying to finish off that last paper, but we leave it out. What do we spend the rest of the night doing? Just stressed out and anxious, losing sleep because we've left God out. Somebody gave me a piece of advice once, and I've never forgotten it. it said, he said simply this, Sometimes, Dan, the most spiritual thing you can do is trust God and go to bed. Trust God and go to bed. It's not ultimately up to us. It's up to the Lord. Now, that doesn't let us off the hook, and I have a word about that in just a few moments, but it's certainly also not all up to us. Verses 3 to 5, look down at the second part of the, of the psalm. This is the second half, you might say. Sovereignty, God's sovereignty encompasses both halves, mind you, but the second part reveal the good reward. We have a, a wise warning in verses 1 and 2, but we have a good reward or a blessing there in verses 3 through 5. For those who place and keep their hope and trust in the Lord. We might put it this way, that Psalm 127 and 1 and 2 give us a precept 
Psalm 127, 3 to 5 give us a picture. And I think the the connection, the link is in the contrast between the two. That's why I titled today's sermon, Emptiness and Fullness with the Lord. In reality, the the unity, the, the connecting point in Psalm 127 is seen in that stark contrast between vanity and virtue. Between the emptiness of trying to live without God in our lives and trying to get by all on our own, that's the rebuke of verses 1 and 2, by way of contrast with the reward, the blessing of learning to trust and rely upon God in fullness in all areas of life, moms and dads, including the area of raising a family and having children. Again, the idea behind this psalm is really, in my opinion, quite simple. It is that success of any kind, success in any endeavor, depends ultimately on God's grace and our looking to Him in faith. Once again, the book of James proves helpful, at least to me here. James chapter 1, verse 17. I love this verse. Many of you probably know it. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above. Every good and perfect gift. Whatever you have that you, kept, that you treasure... You didn't put it there. God did. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You don't have to worry that tomorrow when you wake up, God is going to be different. He won't be different. Hebrews 13, what's it, verse 7 or verse 8? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. Therefore, he never fails. Psalm 127 then instructs us that we will either flounder foolishly apart from life with God, or we will flourish ultimately by living for Him and dependent on Him. Do you want to flourish or do you want to flounder? The choice is simply the choice of faith. It's the choice of faith. Now, I want to take a little brief digression We're going to come back to family rearing in a moment, but a a little brief digression because there's something interesting. I almost elected not to mention this in today's message, but it's, it's kind of interesting to me. I think Solomon slyly puts his fingerprints on Psalm 127 here in some interesting ways. Firstly, there is, of course, the clear repetition of the word vain. Do you notice that? Psalm 127 verses 1 and 2, the word vanity or emptiness, it is the Hebrew term shav. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, uh, build it, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to late. Uh, Go to bed late or rest late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes is all about life under the sun as being vain or empty. By the way, repetition, I'm a highlighter man. I can't read a book without a pen or a highlighter in hand. The scriptures were not written with those implements right around them, so repetition in Hebrew scripture, particularly in poetry, is a way of drawing emphasis or highlighting something that we need to notice. And so the first half of Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2, is really all about emptiness. And we know that because vanity or vain is repeated three significant times. 
in any area of life, from work to recreation to how you spend your money, whatever it is, if you leave God out, you will be empty, unfulfilled, and unsatisfied. Just watch TV, or don't watch TV, but look, look online. Don't look online. I mean, you can't do anything these days without uh, really getting yourself in trouble at times. But anywhere you look in culture, in society, is full of good or bad examples, depending upon your perspective, of trying to live without God. What does Jesus say? Mark 8, 36. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world but forfeits his own soul? What are you animated to achieve, to get more money, a bigger house, a better car? What are you animated to find? If it's not firstly peace with Almighty God and acceptance in Christ's sacrifice, friend, I'm telling you right now, it is going to burn up. It is going to be empty. That is the warning of Psalm 127, at least here at the beginning. There's a second subtle hint to Solomon's authorship. Solomon's being the author of this particular psalm has been hotly debated. You can't find a liberal scholar who agrees that anybody wrote any book uh, in, the, in the Bible that we believe that they wrote. But the, the hint, and you have to dig for this one, the hint is found at the end of verse 2. He gives his beloved sleep. And actually the hint is in the word beloved now, in order to understand where Pastor Dan's going at the moment, we have to put our Old Testament hats on and remember that sordid, shameful story of David and Bathsheba. David, of course, is Solomon's dad, and David the king had a colossal fall. David saw Bathsheba and desired her, brought her into his home, and she conceived. He complicated matters by having Uriah killed. But then what we find out is God judges David. And the child that David and Bathsheba conceived, that child dies. You remember that story found in 2 Samuel. Well, after that child dies, David is largely inconsolable. But God shows a sign of his blessing. David is comforted and he goes into Bathsheba and they conceive another child. And that child is the child Solomon. But in that context, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 25, we find these words. That Nathan came in to console David and Bathsheba. And to bring a message from God that Solomon would be called Jedidiah. And the name Jedidiah, friends, means beloved of the Lord. The friend of the Lord. So perhaps Psalm 127 verse 2 is Solomon's sly signature that he himself, who was once named the beloved of God, is the one who's writing this particular psalm. But I love how the scripture is so flexible. Are you the beloved of God? Are you a friend of God by faith? Well, guess what? He gives you rest and peace as well. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 121 verse 4. The point is plain in verses 1 and 2. Labor without the Lord is hollow. It is empty. It is utterly lacking in a word. It is vain. 
This is the very theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, Solomon, all is vanity. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 11, Solomon writes, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Great achievements done apart from God are destined for failure. They will be burned up. They will be forgotten. Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, Donald Trump, every person who's pursuing purposes apart from Jesus, they will be burned up. Those purposes will be burned up. But you might think, well, what do I have? The, 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 the simplest assignment to raise this child, to raise this family, friend, that will echo into eternity if you're doing it for the Lord, if you're doing it for him. Whether it was Solomon's house, David's house, God's house, your house, my house, if God isn't in it, it's empty. That's the point of this psalm. At the end of the day, Psalm 127 confronts us with two Modern, but dangerous errors. Let me just quickly share these with you. On the first hand, they confront us with the obvious lie that we are destined to work without God. That's the lie of Satan. Work hard. It's all up to you. Work, work, work. Work hard, but work hard alone without God. The phrase phrase of the saying, if it's meant to be, it's up to me, comes to mind. Friend, we were made to work. We'll be looking at that again in the month of September. But we were not made to worship our work. That's the lie of Satan. There's two words I want to give you. One is the word idol. The other is going to sound the same. It's the word idol, but they're spelled differently. The first uh, error is making our work an idol. Worshiping our work, anything we love, anything we give ourselves to, but we, we, we do not pursue it with the Lord. We make it an object of our affection and worship. We were made to honor and exalt God through our vocation, through our labor, all the while depending upon the resources of God in our vocation and work. The second error that at least that I see, or I I, sometimes I'm guilty of, is the false view that says God does all the work without us. So the other idol, spelled I-D-L-E. This is the Error of laziness, of complacency. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Yes, God gets the priority, but also you as the worker or the laborer show up. It's not either God or me, it's both God and me. The first error emphasizes our role and our responsibility to the neglect of God's sovereignty. But the second error emphasizes God's providence and sovereignty to the, to the neglect of our responsibility. It's a both and equation. Now, don't miss the forest for the trees. And we're round and third heading for home here, friends. We are meant to key in on this simple truth. Our work not just our worship, matters. Because in fact, our work is called to be our worship. Not just what we sing about, but what we do throughout the week. I love Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24. You know these words. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive 
the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Your workaday life is an everyday offering to Jesus Christ. At least it can be if you have the right mentality and you, and you rely on the right resources. You know, all week long, I've been mulling over something significant, even something quite conspicuous right outside. We've been collectively endeavoring for a number of years, not just this year, to build the Family Life Center. Between all the hammering, and there's been a lot of that, all the drilling and all the dust flying, I've been quietly thinking and praying over the following question this week. Why are we building the Family Life Center? And actually, who is building it? Who is building it? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And by the way, we're just about a week away from completion. As I thought about that question, my mind started to go in a couple different directions. Are we building the Family Life Center as a monument to ourselves? Or is it being built as a ministry center for the world and for others? Are we expanding in order to preach Christ more faithfully and to reach the lost? Or are we merely making more room for us to spread out and to be comfortable? There is a great opportunity before us, but it is also a great temptation. We can get all sorts of proud of ourselves and say, look what God did and leave him out of it. May we not do that, church. May we lean in and give him praise, but also honor him in the way that we use these facilities that he ultimately has built here. He has done it. Don't forget the story of the Tower of Babel. Those rascals who wanted to make a name for themselves and built that tower up into the heavens. And what did God do? He came, he came down and frustrated their purposes, drove them away. On the other hand, I've been thinking about this project in front of us. Again, that's so close, I can almost taste dedication Sunday's supper. I can almost taste it. And here's what I've been thinking about. Are we all collectively really leaning in together? Or is it the work of a faithful few? Are we all leaning in with our prayers, with our dollars, with our decisions, with our blood, sweat, and tears to see this take place? Let me just tell you, the work's not done yet. Even when we come into ownership of the building, there's still a mortgage to be paid. The work is not done yet. And that work is more than what we can do. It's ultimately what God is going to do. But God wants to do it in and through us, in and through you and me. Are we all in? Oliver Cromwell said, trust God and keep your powder dry. Trust God, but keep your powder dry. We got to trust God, but we also got to be all in. Now, just very quickly, we'll come to a close and we look at the final picture here. Verses 3 to 5 go on to illustrate, really, they, they unpack by way of a picture form the precept of verses 1 and 2. We discover the precept already, but I want you to notice here Solomon, how he makes his point very clear by way of the contrast with raising a family. And there's a connection. Whereas our work life is hollow and pointless, pointless without the Lord, 
so too our home life is full and overflowing with God's blessing as we lean on him or stay dependent upon him. If you think about it, why do you build a house? Why do you guard the city walls if not to bless a family? And that's exactly the connection. Look at verse 3 through verse 5. Behold, the writer says, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. There's a lot of cultural things happening in this text. But when it comes to life at home, God wants you to know this morning that children themselves are his own precious gift. Amen? And we are blessed with so many here at Trinity. Once again, Eugene Peterson's insights for me this week proved invaluable. He says this, quote, In contrast to the anxious labor that builds cities and guards possessions, the writer here praises the effortless work of making children. Opposed to the strenuous efforts of persons who, in doubt of God's providence and mistrust of human love, seek their own gain by godless struggles is the gift of children born not through human effort, but through the miraculous process of reproduction which God has created among us. The example could not have been better chosen. He says, what do we do to get sons and daughters? Very little. The entire miracle of procreation and reproduction requires our participation, but hardly in the form of what we might call work. We did not make these marvelous creatures that walk and talk and grow among us. We participated in an act of love that was provided for us in the structure of God's creation. Close quote. I just, I found that to be so helpful. So helpful to see the the connection between building the house and filling the house. God does them both. Raising kids is an exercise of faith. Amen? Amen. An exercise of faith. I have 17 years and a lot of hairs have left uh, over these 17 years. But it is a blessed, a blessed exercise of faith. We are not the same people as parents that we would be otherwise if not for these blessings of children. God uses them to humble us and to shape us into his image. The disciple of Jesus builds, somebody said, battles, rests, and births, but he or she does so with a humble eye towards heaven and with reliance upon God and his help. We, when we do so, our vocations and our vacations, our work life and our home life become fruitful and fulfilling instead of fruitless and futile. What does Pastor Dan want you to do today? He wants you to remember to take God with you tomorrow. Because that's what God wants you to remember. Take God with you tomorrow. And remember that those little ones in your care are gifts of God. On that point, and we need to say it, regrettably, so many people in our culture today twistedly believe that children are a heavy burden. They are a nuisance, an annoyance. They are an obstacle to one's self-fulfillment and happiness. But the Bible says something starkly different. Children are a heritage from the Lord. 
They are a blessing straight from the hands of Almighty God. They are a blessing, and even as this text reminds us, providing protection and security for parents in their older age. Because you notice maybe the, a precept here. Uh, this father who has his quiver full of kids will not shudder when his name comes up at the city gates. Why? Because his kids will be defending his honor at the city gates. There's a, a life lesson that early on, parents watch over, provide for, and correct their kids. Later in life, kids watch over, provide for, and sometimes have to correct their parents. That's just the way it is. The fact of the matter is your home can be full of people, actually full of souls, full of actual people with children and family and even neighbors at times. But if Jesus isn't welcome, if Jesus isn't present, what is your home? It's empty. It's empty. Psalm 127 commends the kind of home that keeps Christ at the center of its existence, not just on Sunday when you're stressed out and rushing to get here on time at church. But all the rest of the week, Monday to Saturday as well. So mom and dad, are you filling your home with the name of Jesus? Is prayer and Bible study only happening when your kids have gathered with their brothers and sisters in the faith or with their brothers and sisters biological at home? Is Jesus active and present? Do you fill your home with family worship and prayer? And I don't just mean in formal Bible studies, but that each day when, an, when a challenge comes up, when an obstacle happens, you, you help your kids see that God is right there with you. He's present in the midst of that burden, and he wants to lead you through it. You know, the gospel that gets us going is the gospel that brings us home. I think that's part of what we need to understand as well. That actually it's God himself that's building a house. That house is the church. God is building a house through his son, Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say to his disciples who were worried when he said he was going away? Don't fear. Don't you know I'm coming back for you? I'm building a home for you. See, the gospel that brings us in is the gospel that keeps us in. It's the gospel that brings us all the way home. God himself is building a house are we trusting him to build it? You know, the Bible also says God himself is watching and building a city. There is a new Jerusalem coming. A place where we, and as God's redeemed and rescued children, will forever be with him. And there will be no evil in that city. All evil will be put aside. God is building a house and God is watching the walls. He's building a city and he's bringing it with him. And why? Because that's what you need for a family. You need shelter and you need security. And that's why God is building a family. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I think it was Adrian Rogers said, Every sermon should either make the listener glad, make the listener sad, or make the listener mad. How do you respond to today's sermon? If you're in Christ, should not we be glad?
that we are co-laborers with Christ, that he's given us something significant to do. If you are in Christ, but you have not been living under his lordship, maybe you should be sad today. There should be a conviction of sin in your heart and life. And you need to reach out to the Lord and say, Lord, I have sinned against you. Forgive me, Lord. Help me to walk in ways that are righteous and pure and holy. Or perhaps some of you here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ. And you might initially react viscerally to me and to God's word. And you might be mad at what you're hearing. But, but let me just say, your, your anger is misdirected. Your anger should be focused on Satan and the lie not on God and the truth. There is freedom. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. However you need to respond to this message, may God give you the grace to do so. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, your word is true. Your word is life. We thank you, Father, that you take notice of us, that Yes, Sundays, we call them the Lord's Day. They are so significant. But is not tomorrow also your day? Is not the next day also a day when you are to be honored and esteemed and the name of Jesus is to be preached and proclaimed? Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do the work of identifying and cutting away, pruning our own hearts of everything that is not fit for the house of God. The Lord will give you glory and praise as you are worthy of it in Jesus' name. Amen.